When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Foot Down podcast. I'm your host tonight, Jude Seymour, a senior editor over at One Foot Down. With me, as always, is my good friend, Brendan McElinden. Uh, Brendan, what, what do we call you? Meme expert, uh, just pot, uh, Photoshop genius, uh, the guy who... <laughs> You got to tell me about this whole talking to Coach Kelly about uh, the Tommy Reese uh, dirty dancing thing. Was that oh, yeah. an actual conversation that happened? I actually Before... had a uh, clandestine uh, encounter with Ryan Kelly. Oh, my so. gosh. Okay, so we'll talk about that in a second, but I want to introduce our, our guests for tonight. Uh, Ashton Pollard from On3.com, which is, uh, I think, a fairly new website. She's the national college writer for them. Um, Ashton, welcome. Hi, yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I uh, I subscribe to On Three, but I have no idea what I'm doing here. So why don't you why don't you <laughs> give us like a 30 second or minute overview of like what we can expect from On Three and like what I think what will become like kind of the bread and butter of that operation over there? Yeah, sure. So like you said, it is newer. Um, I started there in early August, but our website officially launched mid August, and it's kind of being done. As a rolling launch, basically, the idea is that it um, it was founded by Shannon Terry, who is the founder of Rivals and 24-7. And this is kind of his, his third his third project. And the idea is that it covers college sports. But how it's different from Rivals and 24-7 is there's certainly a more national component that is more focused on kind of like the culture around college sports. So not just the recruiting, not just what happens on the field on Saturdays, which is obviously very important, but like kind of why people fall in love with college sports in the first place. So um, we have, yeah, the national desk that I write for, we have a team of around 15 um, writers for that. And um, then our kind of our head um, senior VP person is Ivan Mizell, who used to be at ESPN. And then we have team sites too, that are kind of on a rolling launch um as well and so we have channels for teams and we also have the sites that are kind of being acquired um individually over time and then one of the other big differences from 24 7 and rivals is that we're building this nil database so it's kind of going to be like a one-stop shop for players coaches parents um trying to navigate the NIL space as that um, is all unfolding, obviously, since July 1st and continues to be um, a mess, not because I say mess, not because I disagree with the fact that it's happening, but a mess just because I think it kind of happens in such a haphazard way. And it's still rather haphazard. And a lot of people don't know what they're doing, particularly 17 year old kids coming into college who are both trying to win a national title and figure out how to monetize themselves. So um, sorry, that was a little bit more than 30 seconds, but no, it's, it's okay. So the, the 23 <laughs> Notre Dame players that signed up for Yoke Gaming on the first day and signed over their life rights in perpetuity probably didn't make such a great, I, great choice there. Or? Um, I mean, you know, I'm kind of all for the, uh, let the free market do its work if they want to do that. <laughs> I'm, I admittedly don't know a ton about Yoke other than the 
300 word stories I've read. So I'm going to refrain from making a full decision on whether or not that was a great idea, but you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with it. And hopefully this database, when we um, launch it in a month or so that uh, NIL part of it, um, hopefully that will be a helpful guide for both them and players all over the country. Awesome. So uh, we got a, a lot to talk to about tonight uh, regarding the 32-29 win over Toledo. That was, I would say, in a word, unexpected. Um, but first, I, I've been dying all weekend to hear um, Brennan talking about uh, his clan, clandestine meeting with Coach Kelly. So, Brennan, what can you tell us? And, and when did the, where did this happen? Was it in the bathroom? Did he barge in on you? No, no, no. So Josh and I, after the game, we went down to the Brian Kelly presser. And after Brian Kelly, you know, gave his statement and answered questions from members of the media, um, they're bringing the players in. And so Brian was skadoodling out and Josh and I were as well because he needed to, um, you know, head back up and finish some stuff up in the booth or in the, uh, the box up there. And so as we're leaving at the, at the same time as Kelly and Schwarbrick. And so both of them, um, sort of Schwarbrick puts an arm around Kelly and they're being escorted out by a few uh, state troopers. And I overhear, I, I didn't tell you this one, but I overheard um, Schwarbrick say to Kelly as they're exiting the press conference, he, he goes, what, you didn't have another obscure John McKay quote to drop on him this week? <laughs> <laughs> and Kelly Big laughs yikes. and then, uh, you know, Schwarbrick goes one way and then Kelly's leaving the stadium and I'm following Josh and like Kelly lingers for a second and I'm not really sure why. And Josh is walking down the tunnel back towards the field because we got to get, you know, we walk onto the field in order to get back up there. And I see Kelly, he's by himself and I kind of look around a little bit and there's nobody around him and there's nobody around me. And I'm like, shit, I'm going to shoot my shot. And uh Kelly's right there and I go, coach Kelly. And he turns around and I go, um, sorry about putting Tommy in a dress. That gift was me and uh, I'm apologizing for it. And he just kind of <laughs> chuckles a little bit and he goes, you're all good. And then, uh, I go, all right, coach, take it easy. And then I sprint off after, uh, after Josh. Good for so, you. Um, yeah, I got the, uh, I got to apologize for, uh, not, maybe not to Tommy, but, uh, maybe first of all, I, I don't think that GIF requires an apology. I thought it, I think it's to this day still hilarious, but, uh, I, I think, I think that's it's funny pretty funny. That, yeah, I think that's great that you, uh, you know, maybe connected a face with it, with a, with a little, uh, fun moment that he actually got to see. So that's cool. So I, I wanted to start with you, Brennan, and just ask you a little bit about, um, being up in the press box for the, for the first time and, and sort of maybe what the vibe was like in the stadium. Uh, you know, I, I think Ash and I were watching at home on the, the, the very delayed Peacock stream, uh, happened to notice the stadium wasn't full. And just was kind of wondering, you know, kind of what was the atmosphere in there like? And, and, uh, you know, were people glad to be back? Like, what, what, what did you get from people? Um, well, early on, it was, uh, it was pretty tepid. Um, and you could actually, I don't know if they picked it up on the broadcast, but, um, the, where our window was just off to the left, there's the Toledo, the, you know, the opponents where they stick them up near the Jumbotron. Uh, you know, with the band and all of their fans. And there was a couple of times in that first half where you could hear, let's go rocket chance, like reverberating it into the press box. And they had the windows cracked a little bit. So we could hear a audible, let's go rockets chant. And it, and it happened a few times. Um, but I, 
you're right when you say that it wasn't. Uh, I don't know how how full they let the stadium look on the the broadcast, but there were huge chunks of the stadium that there just weren't people there. And I heard that there were some issues with people, um, which is to be expected. This was the first game that they rolled out the new ticketing system where you didn't sure. have an actual ticket. Um, so there were some people that maybe, maybe there were some people earlier on, uh, when it was more demonstrative at the start and then they kind of filtered in as it came through, but man, 15,000 short sounds about right. Wow. On the stadium, I don't know if they're going to do one of those, uh, announce it to, since they broke the streak against Boston College. I don't know if they do, they're going to pretend like they're not, that it's a sellout or not, or if they're going to announce it as a sellout, but it, it didn't look lit to me. It's well, funny because they usually make, not. they usually make a press box announcement about what the the attendance was, and I, I and usually about five beat writers I tweeted out immediately after it happens, but I, I guess I missed it if it happens. So yeah, I missed know? it too. I to your, to your point, if, yeah, I feel like it's always someone always tweets it out at some point. I just never never saw it. Yeah. Um, so I, I I will say though that in the fourth quarter. Uh, the crowd had an impact on Toledo. You know, when Toledo and Toledo had those false starts, the crowd was pretty loud for those false starts, and it was definitely rattling Toledo um, on their final drive as well as I think it was like two drives before where they had like the the back to back false start penalties, and that was definitely crowd influence. The the ones that were there um, once the moment started to pick up, specifically in the fourth quarter. They may, I, I'm, you're not going to confuse it with Autzen or uh, Death Valley <laughs> at night, but uh, they had an impact in the game. Like Toledo felt the, the crowd's presence, and I think that it affected their cadence. So kudos to the fans that were there in order in that fourth quarter, getting up out of their seat and cheering loud. It was, it was, it was pretty loud and, and it, and it helped the game. It helped Notre Dame win the football game, to be honest. And how filled in was the student section? Oh, it was it was packed. Yeah, student okay. section was packed. They so they, they represented they, at the very they least. did their part. Yeah, they okay. they did their part uh, amicably. Absolutely. So, was it hard to kind of keep your enthusiasm or disappointment to yourself? I mean, I know I know the press box is famous for no. Cheering, Josh had but... to at one point. Uh, I I didn't audibly do anything, but <laughs> I mean physically, like I'd spin around in my chair. Specifically on that Kyle Hamilton pick that they didn't call a pick, which I, uh, I still think is a pick. I agree. Um, it kind of rolled around on his arms like that, and it looked like a pick to me. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I at, mean, that, at that point, like I did a fist, like I did a you know a fist pump, spun around in my chair, looked away, and did a fist pump. And uh, <laughs> Josh had to, to reprimand me at that point, <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right, all right, all right. So, so. Uh, uh, I would say Sunday Night Rules analyst Terry McCauley, former head of officiating for whatever, whatever, uh, is having a tough week as far as, uh, you know, Notre Dame uh, fans go. First, he uh, calls out Brian Kelly for um, being on the field to argue um, a play in the Florida State game, which Terry, I, I don't know, has some wild ass interpretation of what running into the kicker versus rough the, roughing the kicker is. It seems like it, he hits both legs in that game. So Terry's Terry's dying on that hill. Plus he's also he's also jumping in when I literally I've seen I don't know Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney. I mean ton, I mean Ashton probably speaks to this better than than all of us. Tons of coaches are always on the field being demonstrative about calls they think are bullshit. Um, 
you oh, know, yeah. to, single, to single out Brian Kelly for that seemed kind of ridiculous in my estimation. So regardless, you know, the Peacock thing, you know, obviously they bring Terry in to talk about the, the Kyle Hamilton thing. And he's kind of like, he's kind of like milquetoast about it, right? He's, he's saying, you know, well, there's supposed to be indisputable video evidence and I really don't see it, but you know, who knows what they got. And, you know, it just, he's very like, he doesn't, he doesn't really like hit the officiating after they, after they reverse the call, you know, Terry's just kind of like, well, they must've seen something instead of being like, you know, you got to have indisputable video evidence. And that's what we've always been told, right? Which is like, you got to have you, whatever the f- call on the field is, that is the prevailing um, the prevailing sense until there's indisputable value evidence to overturn. I mean, it wasn't the Zapruder film, but I felt like we we got four or five good angles on that. And just there wasn't anything definitive that made it seem obvious that the ball had hit the ground. So that seemed unfortunate. That seemed yeah, unfortunate. Certainly. And Ashton, I don't know where hurt I, my uh, prop bet. Yeah, I was gonna say, Ashton. I, I know you you uh, were involved in the prop bets on the UHND <laughs> side, taking the OFD prop bets. Where did you fall on the Kyle Hamilton versus the field prop bet? Do you remember? I believe I took the field. Um, I would have to go back and check. I think didn't Hamilton only have like two or three picks last year, and then the number was like seven that seven. we were working with. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm ninety percent sure I took the field. Much to Greg's dismay, and after Florida State, I was like, "Oh God, I'm gonna have to walk this one back." But um, look, yeah, as long I, as the fire insurance is paid up on your apartment, I think you're probably in really good shape. So <laughs> I know Greg, I'm also I'm also firmly in the I don't believe Kevin Austin is a real person camp still, and Greg is <laughs> Greg's not a fan of that. Um, up until the, up until the game, I got a couple of like Ashton, like Kevin Austin looks good in camp, and I'm like, who's Kevin Austin? I'm just so I'm so used to just getting so excited about Kevin Austin, and then he breaks his foot or does something stupid or whatever. So I, I told Greg, I'm gonna need to see like like week five, I need to see like at least four touchdown pass, uh, catches before I acknowledge that Kevin Austin exists. I mean, I'll take it. I mean, that'd be absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Um, yeah. You know, look, we went from uh, Larry Keese being on the team to now being, you know, deciding that he's going to just sit out the rest of the year a la Michael Young a couple of years ago, um, yeah. you know, work work towards his degree and, and you know, pursue some something else in, a, you know, another another football uh, place, which yeah. is fine. Uh, Joe Wilkins was uh, – a big part of the, I would say a significant part of the, the Florida State game plan and was a ghost in Toledo. So, uh, we got to see Dion Colsey and, um, uh, Lorenzo Styles Jr. for the first time, uh, yep. in an actual game of consequence, which was, uh, super awesome and actually back to back, if I recall correctly. I think the first pass went to Styles and the second one went to Colsey, if I recall correctly. And I think they both caught their passes. So, um, yeah. So look, you know, guys leave, guys step up. Um, you know, obviously we've, I, I'm with you, Ash, and I've, I've wanted so much from Austin. I've let myself be disappointed by this several times now. Um, I really want to believe, but I, I'm, I'm afraid to get hurt again, as Michael no, Scott would exactly. say. Exactly. So, so, like, quite literally, that picture of Michael Scott, I'm ready to get hurt again, is in my head when yeah. it comes to Kevin Austin every time his name is mentioned. Yeah. So Brendan, was there just like a collective exhale when uh, when Cone hits Mayer on the the touchdown with whatever amount of time was left, and then I guess 
the second part of that, which was super fun for me, who's been waiting for an Avery Davis pass since they recruited him as a quarterback. Uh, That's the, been my uh, old, dream. Uh, I've been I've been pounding that drum since. Yeah, the old two point conversion. Yeah, so. so there was the crowd was. I mean, it, we were down on the field for that one. So with seven minutes left, they let everybody, all the media members, down onto the field. So we were in the end zone, uh, right in front of the visitors' tunnel. And so Josh and I are basically standing on the we we were right in front of where Toledo scored, uh, where they and we'll probably get to that where Toledo blew the game by scoring a touchdown. Um, but yeah, Josh, I mean, everybody was going nuts with it. Uh, high fives. And um, the only people who didn't go crazy because all the, the, you know, everybody's jumping up and cheering and going nuts with it. And I look over to my right and standing right there is uh, Tim Priester and Pete Sampson. And I mean, Absolutely no expression when they scored that touchdown. It was uh nothing, just oh, okay. All right, they they scored the touchdown to take the lead. Nice. Good good for you guys. It's like man, it was uh I just I mean I like I get Samson because he's I don't know, Priester it runs through his blood. I mean he's just uh yeah. you know, he's a grad. I just I can't imagine separating myself emotionally from it. I, I've tried many times, but it's very difficult. Because <laughs> I mean in that moment, because it was yeah, it's it's a it's a two minute it's a two minute drive, right? There was there was a minute and forty or whatever left on the clock, and they drive the field uh, using the old 2013 Michigan State attack, right, where you throw long, get some flags, march down the field, and score a touchdown. Um, and I, I don't know, man. It was uh, for a game against Toledo. The ending was uh, very exciting um, and satisfying in the ending, but then the totality of the game comes into effect as well but um yeah I, I being down there on the field to to have that moment uh was was pretty special and fun so ashton and Brent and i have been kind of bouncing this back and forth in our little group chat that we have um do you feel like uh this has uh this is reminiscent of 2018 uh the way that 2018 started or is I that do, just yeah. trying too hard no, I definitely see, I definitely see the parallels and I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna say if we should be concerned, I'm gonna say why we should be concerned and it's gonna have a parallel to 2018 and then we can discuss whether or not being concerned is actually warranted. But it, it has like, I mean, obviously 2018, you have the Ball State win and the Vandy win that both could very easily have not gone that way. And you have that same thing here with both FSU and Toledo. I think that what's more concerning here, and this is not new information, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, is the way that it seems to be happening is the the big play issue. Um, so obviously you have the two big plays at Florida State. You have the two big plays at Toledo. Now Notre Dame leads the country in plays of 60 plus yards with four, which is not the category you want to lead. <laughs> and so I think that like, I think that in 2018, and obviously that was Lee's first year as a defensive coordinator. I think in 2018 there, at least with me, there was a little bit less of this, like this is, this is out of control and whether I think out of control might be too strong currently, because I don't think that the defense is awful and I I'm not trying to overreact, but I think for the first time since, I don't know, 2010 around that time ish, like 
there's the genuine fear every time the defense gets the ball of like they could score in a single play. And that just didn't really exist with Clark Lee. It happened. What is it? Three times. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but no, that's, that's exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Pete Sampson's been lo- loving to tweet out that a lot. Cause uh, yeah. you know, as the world's foremost Clark Lee biographer, I think he's got a, I think he's contractually obligated to do so, but I mean, it is a good reminder of, of, you know, how, how these defenses are so different. So. Yeah. So I think you see the, you see the parallel and that you have these like narrow wins against these teams that are not very good. And I think that last week we could talk about maybe Florida state's good. That was put to rest last night. when <laughs> state. But like, I think it's sim, it's similar in that these, this is a problem now. It could be turned around as it was in 2018. It could be turned around this year too, but I think the way that it's happening is different. And I'm a little more concerned because again, like I just said, I think for the first time in like 10 years, I don't really have faith that the defense is going to stop anyone on any given drive. And they do. Like we saw that they stopped Toledo for a fair portion of the second, uh, the end of the second quarter and then the entire third quarter. They do, but so it's probably a little bit of confirmation bias, but like I don't think it's, I don't think it's a misplaced statement to sit here after two weeks and be like, this big play thing could be a problem. I don't know. Feel free yeah, to yeah. They, they had 63 yards of – Toledo had 63 yards of offense in the second and third quarter combined. Right, yeah. And, yeah. It, and if you look at the defense overall, um, the two field goals they hit in the first half, it was uh, drives inside Notre Dame territory. They didn't really have to drive, and then there's the, the long play. So, so really Toledo's offense until that final drive, um, it was the, a long pass play and a long run play. And that was essentially Toledo's afternoon. And how do you how do you fix that? How do you how do you fix giving up? Um, is it just it it sounds like it should be something easy to to fix because it's bad tackling. Um, but I, I don't know. Right. It's just it's well, I remember. Concern is, oh, go ahead. I, so I apologize. One of the, the things I remember about Brian Kelly saying, I think it was after the Ball State game, was just he said something to the effect of this is not sustainable. And what he was talking about was leaving Drew Tranquil on the field because he pu- couldn't possibly afford to take him off. And and the problem was that Brandon Wimbush wasn't running the offense in a way that was allowing Drew Tranquil to get five breaths of air before he had to come back on the field, right? And so I think we've got – I think we're that's what reminds me about 2018 – is when the offense is, is sputtering and the defense is um, suspect, um, yeah. you know, fl- flagging sometimes uh, against teams that, uh, you know, the, the, the competition is going to get much stiffer from here. I just, I, st- I start to worry that uh, absent some sort of spark on the offense, uh, we're going to continue to, to exacerbate the problems that we've been seeing with the defense. Would so that you be think fair? It's a, you think it's a problem that, uh, Cone led seven straight drives that resulted in zero points after the touchdown. Yeah, I <laughs> think that, we're. I think uh, Notre is that Dame. A problem? Is, I think Notre Dame is extremely good at uh, coming out with it, their hair on fire and scoring in that opening drive and getting us all psyched for the fact that it's going to be like fifty-two nothing by the end of the game, and then acting like the second drive has no reflection on what happened on the first. You know what I, I mean? Guess- like. Part of the problem is what worked on the first drive in both the Florida State game and the Toledo game, and it was Michael Mayer. Mm-hmm. And in the Toledo game, all of a sudden, I, I, Kelly in the in the post game talked about, you know, they bracketed him and took him out of the game. You know, guy, you know, on 
so they took him out, but you still have to find a way to get him involved because both times that you look explosive and unstoppable, it's Michael Mayer. And then on the final drive to win the game, who is it that wins the game? It's Michael Mayer. I, he's your best player on offense. Uh, and I don't think that there's a question of that. It's, it's bared out, um, you know, the last two games. So if, if they're doing things to take him away in that aspect, do some things to get him, you know, get him free. I just, yeah, so I, this, think, I think maybe you're trying to get too cute. So this becomes the $64,000 question, Ash, and what do we do on offense that's different than what we've done in the first two games? Because again, I, I, when the, when the degree of difficulty goes up here, I just, I just don't think this is a, this is a winning formula. Um, well, if we can't bring back the off, the best players on the offensive line from the last three years, which is what I would like to do. Apparently they're making tens of millions of dollars in the NFL, but keep going. <laughs> um, I was thinking, I, I don't know. Like, so, <laughs> I mean, there's the Tyler Buckner option, um, which I, I know that we were going to get to here and. Yeah, well, let's talk about um, it. So, okay. So we've, I mean, it's been, it's been talked about ad nauseum what the differences are between Cone and Buckner. So I won't, I won't go through that other than they have very different skill sets. One's old, one's young, et cetera. So you saw yesterday, you plug Tyler Buckner in, in the second quarter, very beginning of second quarter, if I remember correctly. And in, Immediately, you see a difference in the run game because Tyler Buckner has that run ability as well. So the, de- the Toledo defense ends up kind of on its heels. And because Buckner rips off, what, two straight runs of his, like, 20, 26 and 11 yards or something, right? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And so previously, aside from the first drive when the pocket did not collapse on top of Cone, um, for the rest of the first quarter, basically, the pocket was just collapsing. You put Buckner in. You see an immediate difference. Kyron Williams rips off a 43-yard run. Um, you can – I'm kind of leaning in favor of putting Buckner in because then for the rest of the game, he – I think they averaged, what, like almost 12 yards a play when Buckner was in there just because the defense has to prepare for an added level of uncertainty with Buckner back there with Cone. You kind of know – and, again, he's not the most immobile person to ever play quarterback, but he's certainly not Buckner. He's not Book with his legs. Um, my concern with putting Buckner in there is, yeah, he did this, but he did this against Toledo. I know Toledo's defense is experienced. They brought back the whole defense, whatever. But like, it's also Toledo's defense. Like, if you put, if you put Buckner in, in Lane Stadium, or even in a couple weeks at Soldier Field against Wisconsin with a better front seven than Toledo's is, a, a crowd that I, I mean, obviously in Blacksburg, it's going to be heavy Virginia Tech. In Chicago, it'll probably be split, but like there's going to be plenty of Wisconsin people there. Like if you put him in in a more like hostile environment, then does he make the mistakes that you didn't see Saturday because he's playing Toledo at Notre Dame Stadium? I, I don't know. That's kind of what I was wrestling with because I don't want to be the person that like Buckner steps in, does a few good things, and I'm like, goodbye, Jack Cohn, like whatever. <laughs> I, I think that that's an overreaction, and I think that you will like Buckner didn't make a lot of mistakes um yesterday, but like I I think that you would still see those should you put him in at Lane at in Lane Stadium. Um I don't know. That was <laughs> that was kind of a thought that went that was a roller coaster thought of I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean do you, do you Yeah think so I, 
I mean, Brendan, I, I think that the point that maybe Greg made to us, uh, I don't know if we, he made it publicly or just in the DMs today, um, is, is right on, which is, is Buckner's here to stay. He's not, he's not taking Cone's job, but he's absolutely going to figure in the offensive game plan from, from here on out because it's clearly, um, the, the mixing up of the patterns and the changing of the rhythms is clearly something that feels like it's going to work against multiple teams. Would, would that be fair, Brendan? Well, I would say that um, he's not going to be a package guy. And Kelly said that in his post game that it they put Buckner in and, and he said he just ran the offense. So I don't think that it's going to be something like a belldozer or uh, 18 wheeler package. Right. I don't I don't think that they're going to put Buckner in to run a specific package of plays. Um, you could make some um, allusions to uh Tommy Reese and Everett Golson, but I don't even think that that's right either. I was um, thinking um, Andrew Hendricks, 2011. That's what it feels yeah, like. Yeah, a, a little bit. I I think that when when we bring up the um, when we use 2018 and kind of what strikes to me with 2018, I think that there's a similar crossroads. Um, and I think the Purdue game is going to be one that I think the Purdue game could be a turning point for this kind of competition because if the pass rush against Toledo is getting home, um, George Karloftis <laughs> uh, would like has entered the chat yeah. and he would like to introduce himself um, to Jack Cohn. So if there's some issues, which obviously there are pretty demonstrative issues with the offensive line. And the pocket is collapsing, and they're going to have to move the pocket. I, I just right now it looks like um, you know Tosh Baker's going to be the left tackle moving forward till at least week six, probably. So um, there's going to be this ongoing issue of the offensive line, and either you can keep trying to put a guy in there that. Some of those sacks, I, I feel like he just didn't feel the pressure or didn't get rid of the ball fast enough and just took the sacks and they're not ro- like they're not rolling him out enough, I guess, if to, to give him more time. You need to do some things to help your offensive line and they weren't doing that under um, with with Jack Cohn in there. So this, I think the leash on on Jack Cohn against Purdue is going to be pretty short. And I think that's ultimately what it's going to boil down to is there's get, there's now a leash on him. There wasn't a leash coming into Toledo, but I think that there is now a leash there. And if they need a spark, they're going to get start going to Buckner. And at what point do you tell yourself, look, we're bringing him in for a spark. When do we just want to make this the offense? Right. When is when is when is when does it stop being about getting a spark to get things going and just let's just have things going? And well, I also, oh God. No, go ahead. I, I just, I, the one thing I was going to say was, I, I just, I guess I need a larger sample size on his throwing prowess yeah. before I'm, before I'm sold that, you know, that he becomes sort of the, the replacement. Um, I was going to add, like, to your point about if, if Tyler Buckner becomes synonymous with the spark, and this is not based on any data I have in front of me, but just, based on like watching two quarterback systems and then just like being a human being, like what does that <laughs> do to Jack Cohn's like confidence yeah. and thoughts on his role in the system? Like if the thought is we plug you in until we need something and then we get rid of you, like that just doesn't seem to work. And again, I'm not looking at data about two quarterback systems in front of me right now, but like 
that, and I know Brian Kelly has played, what is it, like three quarters of the years with like multiple quarterbacks at some point. Like we very rarely have that Ian book where it's like, this is the guy uh, until we're up 52, nothing. But like, I don't know, just two quarterback systems always scare me because so much can go wrong. And then Brendan, like to your point, like at what point do we make that the offense instead of plugging him in and hoping that the spark works? Because the spark also won't always work either. And then what happens from there? Yeah, Yeah, and and if you're Cone, you're going to start pressing because you're going to, like you said, if you're Cone, where does your confidence fall if if – if you're not seen as the spark and you're like, well, I want to be the spark too. And then he might start mm-hmm. pressing and throwing interceptions or making mistakes in the, right. the past game. So that, and, yeah, and that's to, a concern too. And to be honest with you, this is, I, I feel like this is not that uncommon um, on a national level where a graduate transfer is brought in, um, becomes, and ends up becoming sort of the transition, the guy to transition the person who wasn't ready through fall camp, but becomes ready in a matter of three to six weeks, right? Um, I'm thinking like, a, you know, sort of how Everett Golson uh, sort of ended up with Florida State, how Brandon Wimbush with with uh, UCF. Uh, I mean, those are Notre Dame guys, and that's why I paid attention to them most. But it's very rare that you get like a Joe Burrow, um, Russell Wilson type of, as a yeah. graduate transfer. It, it tends to be guys that have something and for Cohen it it wasn't necessarily a confidence issue or a mechanical issue it was more of a recovery from a from a uh, from an injury issue but um I, I got to be honest like if if this is just a prelude to getting Tyler Buckner ready um to be the starter say week whatever um I, you know look I, I think I think most fans would be willing to to accept that, I, I don't, that's not great for Jack Cohn, but it might be great for the Notre Dame football program. And what, like, look at the sketch. So the pro- part of the problem is look at the next six games after um, the murderer's you know, row. Yeah, it, it's, it's a murderer's <laughs> row, and, and including um, you know a trip to Lane Stadium. Um, there's uh, Cincinnati. They had their first half issues with Mercer, but. Um, defensively, uh, and then offensively, Desmond Ritter turned it right on. Um, so Murray State, right? Or, yeah, Murray State. Yeah, yeah. The um, Racers. So there's you. You're gonna have to expedite this process, and that's why I kind of look to Purdue as being the game where, like, Cone needs to have a good game against Purdue because Wisconsin's there, and Cincinnati's there, and Virginia Tech's there, and USC's there, and North Carolina's there. So if, if you're going to roll, if you're going to, if you're going to do this, this two quarterback system, um, okay. But if uh, the third game is kind of when coaches, that's famously when Brian made his move to, uh, Ian book. It's also right. when Dabo made the move from, um, Kelly Bryant to, oh, Trevor, to Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence. Yeah. Yeah. So that third is- game is kind of, you can't let the season get away. So Correct. this is happening too now at Florida because they had Emory oh. Jones, who was like the presumed heir to Kyle Trask throne. And then you have Anthony Richardson come in and looks really good. And Dan Mullen is sitting there kind of like, 
I don't know, we're going to keep playing both. And <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, but, like, you play Alabama next week. So, like, and yeah. obviously Wisconsin is not Alabama. Cincinnati's not Alabama. I get that. But, like, kind of the similar vibe of, like, this works when you play FAU or Toledo or whoever. But, like, you, I mean, you don't have to have to pick. But, like, switching quarterbacks – against Alabama or (laughs) is a lot more difficult than switching quarterbacks against Toledo or FAU or USF, who is who Florida played the last two weeks. It's like kind of the same, same vibe. Yeah. That's that's absolutely a a good point. So yeah, that'll be, that'll be interesting to see. Now, Brennan, did you, did we get a status update about Michael Carmody at all? Is that a long-term thing or is that just a day-to-day thing? Um, it's an ankle sprain, right? If I recall ankle correctly. Sprain. And yeah. for an offensive lineman, I mean, Hainsey played a whole season with an ankle sprain and it was, it was pretty noticeable. Right. Um, when he played with the ankle sprain, um, I don't know. It, uh, it probably is going to be something that's a few weeks, you know, three, six weeks, probably if it's any Oof. kind of sprain, it's low, maybe closer to three. If it's high six and I then mean, like <laughs> a high ankle sprain is basically, I mean, you can play. That's basically it. You're not going to have the kind of push that you need uh, to play left tackle. Um, so, I, yeah, it's 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 going to be Tosh Baker for a little while. So we're going to be rolling out Jack Cohn a lot, or is that is that your guess? My hope is is that they need to move. My hope is that they need to move the pocket because the pocket there's not really a pocket right now. So you can keep banging your head against the wall. Because Toledo shouldn't. How many? How many sacks did Toledo end up with? Did they end up with like five sacks, six sacks? Six. Yeah. That's that's not um, to borrow from Kelly as alluded to before. That's not sustainable um, when you're giving up six sacks to Toledo. So yeah, uh, yeah you got you you. They need to do something with the offensive line, and the guys that you have are going to be the guys that you have. It's not like there's a magic bullet in there. They're not going to put in Rocco Spindler and suddenly everything's working. They're not going to, you know, Blake Fisher's, you know, gone for till at least the USC game. Um, there is no magic bullet for the offensive line. They're going to, co- you know, congeal and get better as they get more reps together, but they have to start getting creative with things. I want to switch topics a little bit and, and just talk um, maybe not as specifically about this last game, but, but the two games that we've seen so far. I, I know it's a small sample size, but uh, Ashton, we'll start with you. Like who, either offense or defense, who's really kind of um, surprised you so far? Who who did you maybe have low expectations of and has come out like a firecracker? Or who did you expect a lot more from uh, in the two games that we've seen so far? Um. Well, Kevin Austin being alive is a surprise to me. Good start, good start. Um, I'm pretty impressed with J.D. Bertram. Um, obviously, he got bumped up to that starting role when Mar- it's Maris, right? Yeah. He was, he was yep. well, right? Okay, yeah. Um, and then he led the team in tackles with 11 yesterday, recovered that fumble. I mean, obviously, Meyer forced it, but he's the one that picked it up. So, yeah, I've. I've been impressed with J.D. Bertrand so far, I think especially with the linebacker walls entirely collapsing around him. He's done a good job along with Drew Wright. I mean, Drew Wright, captain, we kind of knew he was going to be the head of that room, but I think that Bertrand has, has stepped up in what is not a bad situation because 
prior to this season, the linebacker room was was kind of loaded, and there were going to be six, seven, eight guys that were going to see a lot of playing time. But um, I think especially yesterday, I was I was pretty happy with what he did. Same question to you, Brennan. Well, I mean, who's kind of jumped out to you? Um, well, there's two players specifically. Um, one is Isaiah Foskey. Yeah. He seems like an yeah. absolute monster and he's going to continue to probably be the rest of the year. We needed, like, it's been a while since Notre Dame. I mean, Aquara kind of always was just a step to the step before, like you get the, the hurries and the hits, but didn't, didn't, especially in that 2019 season, didn't get the sacks. Foskey, um, he, he gets all over it. And I've been really impressed with Foskey for a guy that didn't have much written about him, um, was kind of a ghost in the spring and in fall camp and then season starts and he's got three sacks. Um, so he's been absolutely phenomenal. And that, I think that bodes well because as he gets more reps too in the, the role, he'll get better. Um, and then, um, on the other end, um, Michael Mayer, it, it can't be stated enough how good <laughs> Michael Mayer is at playing the tight end position. Um, when, when they're focused on Michael Mayer, it just seems like it is an unstoppable facet of this offense. And I, I wonder if they're going to start trying to do more creative things with him, um, as the season moves on because it just, he is an absolute mismatch for defenders and for a passing game that needed a spark on Saturday um, on that final drive. I mean, there he was Kevin Austin too, um, kind of provided a spark as well. Um, the, the galloping ghost uh, redux. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I was definitely going to say Foskey, but I'll throw out another one. Uh, Jason Adamaloa. Uh, I think yeah. that, um, he was up in the Toledo grill. Um, I felt like all day. I mean, probably not the case, but, uh, I, I remember there was a, a batted pass that was, that was huge. Um, he was definitely getting after the quarterback. I, I'm not sure he had a ton of tackles. Um, but, but I just felt like he was a, he was a clogger. Um, and I felt like, you know, he was somebody that they definitely had to account for. Um, and he played a ton of, uh, snaps. I, I really feel like he's coming into where the coaches are trusting him a lot more to, um, to be on the field and be a, be a presence, um, and not a rotational guy like he was, I, I feel like last year. So yeah. he's the one who's kind of, uh, raised my eyebrow. Um, you know, I, I think I, you know, we love to talk about Kyle Hamilton and deser- deservedly so. And, and, you know, some of the stuff that the plays that he made in Florida State were, were bonkers. And, and the, and the one, the, the interception that wasn't against Toledo is just like, I don't even understand how you have a presence of mind to be on the ground and, and the, the ball like hits you and you just, you instinctively like snatch it like it's a baby falling from, <laughs> or a cat falling from the hard rock stadium. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Ashley, is that cat okay? You're the national writer. You tell me, you tell us. Is that cat okay? Did they catch him with a flag? What was the deal there? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I I still want to know how that cat got into the stadium. I I have no idea. Um, we wrote a, we wrote a story on it. I did not write it though. So I glanced at it, but 
I mean, yeah, it is Miami. It was kind of like, this is Florida. Like what else is new? But, um, no offense to Florida. I love Florida, but it's a wild place as, as is, uh, wild as is heavily documented on Twitter. Um, so yeah, I, part of me is like, this is kind of funny. And then part of me is like, you dropped a cat from the second or third or whatever level of Hard Rock Stadium. Yes, you caught it, but like, that's, rather traumatizing then they kind of like uh i'm gonna borrow jessica spatana's word (laughs) manhandling that she tweeted like they manhandled it and no i don't have like the most confidence in 21 year old college boys like handling a cat after probably what was 12 drinks but like they were like i don't know i i just i felt bad for it after i read the headline and was like that's hilarious i watched the video and was kind of like this is sad and this should not have happened. When it was hanging from that, that piece of, I don't know, foam or whatever, it was harrowing watching that cat just like hanging from that foam and the people above it are trying to reach down to it. And I, by the way, I don't think the flag caught it. I think it, it cushioned the fall, but I don't, I think it went right through the flag. Uh, I was wondering about that. And then they, I felt like they were, they were Rafikiing it at the end with like a circle of life, yes. like a, yeah, yeah. a Bo Pelini and the cat sort of vibe yeah. or whatever. It was just, it was yeah. just, let the poor cat alone. I mean, it just, it's like the cat, there was a cat in Yankee Stadium, what, three weeks ago or whatever. And just like people were fascinated and was like, the cat just really needs to find its way out because right now it's, there's lights and sound and just people and it's just not going well. It's just not yeah, there going was, well. There was the one on the field of that Giants game like two years ago, last year, something like that. Yeah. That black yeah. cat. It was just, uh, you know, I, would, I, I, very I think we're triggering a lot of our long suffering, but maybe, maybe it doesn't trigger them as much, but Cubs fans, all this talk about cats in, in stadiums. <laughs> yeah. Or Maybe goats. The curse of the curse of the black cat. Yeah. So, um, because we have Ashton on the on the uh, the podcast, and we do like to talk about um, games that did not include Notre Dame, I, I would love to hear. Um, maybe from Ashton first, and then Brendan, if he got a chance to after uh, having a very full day. Um, what games stood out on on sort of a national landscape? I mean, you know, obviously there were some there were some upsets. Uh, there were some eyebrow raisers. There were some close calls. Uh, Ashton, what game did you actually uh, really enjoy watching either part of or the whole thing? Yeah, so maybe obvious answer, but the Oregon-Ohio State game, I really thought that Oregon was going to blow them out of the water, especially because they didn't have uh, Kayvon Thibodeau, who obviously is going to be the first-round pick, perhaps first overall. And then they didn't have Justin Flo, who is there. He's not technically a true freshman, but he played one game last year and then had an ankle injury, so he's really a freshman. He was the Pac-12 freshman of the year, I mean freshman of the week, last week because he had 14 tackles and forced a fumble, which was the first time both of those things had happened at Oregon in like 15 years or something wild like that. Um, So, yeah, both of them were gone. Then they lost a couple other guys on defense early in the game, and I just – I. I'd seen Minnesota exposed some of the issues in the Ohio State defense um, two weeks ago, but I just I was kind of thinking like you like if if they get into a shootout here, like Ohio State's going to win because they always win in shootouts. It's kind of <laughs> what I was thinking, and I yeah. was shocked at just how really like bad Ohio State's defense looked. Like it was kind of glimpses of that 2018 team that was giving up like 50 to Maryland, like. 
they um there were if I remember correctly there were eleven receivers or tight ends or running backs or whatever there were eleven eleven players that caught passes from Anthony Brown and every single one of them had a catch of at least ten yards like if you looked at the long column on like ESPN under the stats like all of them it's like fifteen twenty thirteen twelve like just everyone it's just like big I mean big play in quotes like a ten yard catch is not like a huge play but like I mean, if you rack up uh, 15 catches of, like, over 10 yards and you're just, like, repeatedly gassing this Ohio State defense, like, that's impressive given the talent that they have. Um, And then, I mean, Anthony Brown, quarterback at Oregon, he looked pretty good. I mean, I think he it was, like, 170-something yards, a couple of touchdowns. So, like, pretty good game, handled the pressure well. C.J. Verdell, their running back, had 161 yards. Yeah, and a couple of scores. So I think I was just I was very impressed with Oregon's ability to stop stop Ohio State. They still scored um, 28 points, and CJ Stroud threw for 484 yards. But like they stopped them far more than I thought they could, especially given they didn't have Thibodeau or Flo on the field. So I think that was that was the big game that stuck out to me. Um, I can comment on others or y'all can go ahead, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Anthony Brown is like, I feel like he's going to, he's, he's on the Hunter Renfro plan because I remember <laughs> watching him play, uh, against Notre Dame when Brandon Wimbush ran all over Notre Dame in that 2017 game. Like that was Anthony Brown. Like I just yeah. feel like Anthony Brown has been in college for a <laughs> shocking amount of time. Um, but also, I don't even think Anthony Brown is particularly good. Like I don't think he's I don't either. He just played I out think of his Ohio mind. State secondary is they're very young, and like C.J. Verdell was electric in that game, um, but there was just like there was something wrong with Ohio State. Um, offensively, they put up massive numbers, and they still managed to only score twenty eight points. How do you throw for almost five hundred yards? And only you have three 100 yard receivers and you only score 28 points. I think that that's more so than Ohio State's like their secondary had some issues and um, they couldn't stop CJ Verdell, but Oregon only scored 35 points. Uh, that's a game where I've seen where Ohio State probably should have scored close to 50 and they just didn't. They would just like stall out in weird moments and uh, just Something's wrong with this uh, Ohio State team. Is there um, any just, is there any podcast openly speculating if Ohio State might go five and six? And, no, I don't, I don't think so. Not to my knowledge. <laughs> Not like this one. Um, well, also, I was going to say on the on the twenty eight points. It's not like they were turning the ball over. CJ Stroud threw that interception at the very end of the game that sealed it. But it's not like yeah. Oregon forced four turnovers and was taking the ball away from them so they couldn't score. It was just like just like Ohio State wasn't scoring. Yeah, they would they would get pat they would get past the fifty and then the drive would just stall out. It was it was yeah. very weird. Um, yeah, dude, I have I have a game um, other than the Schadenfreude that we enjoyed from you know Texas losing and from <laughs> Iowa State oh losing. My God. Uh, there was a lot of delightful schadenfreude, and I'm glad that Notre Dame didn't join into the blue blood uh, okay, failures yeah. of Saturday because yeah. there was a lot of blue blood failure. Um, but you're not going to like this one. Um, dude, Michigan kind of looked good. Yeah, I know. I know Washington. <laughs> I know Washington 
uh, has problems. They lost to Montana. That's not great. But Michigan's defense with the new defensive coordinator, their defense looked really, really, really good. Um, and Hassan Haskins is a good running back. Um, I think eventually they might end up making a change at, at quarterback to J.J. McCarthy at some point or get him more involved. But I'm, I don't know. The Big Ten's kind of interesting um, now that Ohio State's been kind of exposed. Um, but, yeah, the, I, I kind of begrudgingly – uh, was impressed with Michigan, and that's not something that I say lightly because I was going to say you got to live there. So I mean, yeah, that's, that's... I, I hate I hate everything about them. And watching the game, I wanted them to lose so bad. And Washington just... was not the team that was going to do that to them, though. It was I not. Just... No. No. Yeah. Not. What's shocking? The shocking stat out of that game is Cade McNamara threw for forty-four yards. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Forty-four yards. They, and I, they, they don't have any points. Yeah, they scored, scored 31 points, four rushing touchdowns, whatever. But, like, his QBR is, was 16.2. Like, yeah. you is look at this. <laughs> and I think they had – I think he had, like, a 25-yard pass play, too. So I think half of his yardage came on a single pass play in the first half. Look, I can look right now. Uh, 33. <laughs> wow. Yep. Okay. Unbelievable yep. cow. Yeah, because Ronnie Bell went down with a knee, and that was right. that was their that was the only guy who could catch passes really. Um, yep. And yep. yeah, if they if they can get the quarterback position figured out and what they want to do with that, um, so, that their uh, defense is very good. Iowa Big Ten champions then is a man. Yeah, Iowa does look good. Uh, we are famous on this podcast for shitting all over Matt, uh, Matt Campbell because we just I do know. not understand the Matt Campbell hype. Uh, Coach Osinko. Just I'm like, on that train. I, just, I, I don't, don't get it. it. I still I don't, don't get it. it. He has never beaten Iowa in five tries. He's never beaten Iowa. He barely like, has beaten NIU or um, whatever, yeah. whatever they're Northern at. Iowa. You and I. Yeah, you and I. Yeah, yeah it's like – I was going to say, we went through 2019, going to this Camping World Bowl, Brock Purdy, who's, quote, mobile, can't do anything, gets sacked a million times, and then we just forgot about that as a country and just were like, well, <laughs> the state's great, which, like, to be fair, I get, like, the, the bowl from the previous season does not necessarily reflect the team the following season, unless you're Notre Dame, and then it always does. Like, <laughs> Like, if if you're going to do this whole last year's bowl doesn't matter thing, then apply it evenly across the country. And then, like, yes, Iowa State goes and beats Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl last year. That Oregon team shouldn't have even been there in the first place because the only reason they got in was because they won the Pac-12 championship that they shouldn't have been in because Washington should have been there. So, like, we just – we concocted this narrative, again, that Matt Campbell is going to the playoff, apparently, and – I, I don't like that we put them on the same level as Oklahoma. Oklahoma has their problems, and those were very evident against Tulane. But, like, they're not on the same level as Oklahoma, and I don't get why we anointed Matt Campbell as the savior when he's done nothing to me, really, to prove that he is other than beating Oklahoma that one time or whatever they did. Yeah, I, I just look. He's thirty six and twenty nine at Iowa State, and at UCLA. Okay. And if you if you yeah. dare mention if you dare mention it on on the internet, you'll get these Matt Campbell like people being like, "You don't understand how hard it is to win in Ames." Like, okay, fine. Yeah, I 
you know, but like, let's take out the FCS wins too. And you're looking at a number that's a lot closer to 500 and you can say, oh, well, you know, you can't count the first two years or whatever number, you know, they always try to move the goalposts on you or whatever. And it's just so frustrating. It's just like, look, dude, you just have to beat Kurt Ferentz one time. I mean, that will, that'll be the start of being impressed by you all, you know, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I just, I, I really don't get it. And then, um, USC and Stanford. I can't say I saw that coming. Um, oh, you know, you Stanford we, looked like uh, hot garbage the first week, and then all of a sudden, uh, they can USC... barely score against Kansas State. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that uh, what are the chances that Clay Houghton is the head coach of the uh, USC Trojans come October? I mean, can we put in a GoFundMe? Can we start that? Because I would donate. Um, I would like him to still be the coach. I would like. I, would, I don't think it would impact so. the season. I just want to make. I just want to see his. I mean, there's face. there's a bit of a history of replacing the head coach right around the Notre Dame game. So, I mean, I'm not saying he's going to get left on a tarmac anywhere, but I just, you know, look, it just they, I they should they should have never lost that team. They should have never lost that team, and it wasn't like. You could say, oh, it was a fluke pump block or a hundred yard kickoff return or whatever. Like, no, they just got, they got worked, you know? Yeah. So it was okay. both sides of the ball. Their defense looked like trash because they gave yeah. up 42. And yeah. Keaton Slovis can't throw the ball 10 yards downfield. He threw the ball 42 times for 223 yards. That but Keaton is- Slovis is frustrating because sometimes he looks like a freaking genius. And sometimes I'm like, are you even a quarterback in, in a, in a major college program? Like, I just, us. Uh, Incredible. I mean, like, I want to believe in the kid, but it just, he hasn't, I don't know, he, he hasn't put, to, he hasn't put together a consistent run stretch of games for me. So. He's one of those other, obviously not a coach, but one of those other people that we anointed as the savior of a program that I just don't really get. And like, that's fine. He comes in, you do that. He's a very high level recruit going to USC. I get that narrative, but like, he hasn't really done anything to demonstrate to me that he is Matt Leiner, or like even Matt Barkley. Like I just, I don't. Or even John David Booty. <laughs> like we, he's like, not even Mitch Mustaine at this point. <laughs> okay, he's better than Mitch Mustaine, but keep going. <laughs> no, I'm just gonna say it. It falls into that same category of media narrative continues despite shocking lack of results. <laughs> to me, I don't know. I yeah. also, I'm looking, I'm looking at this this box score right now, and this. Every, not every year, because it's only been two years under Graham Harrell, but the last two years, it's like Graham Harrell's coming in. He's bringing in this air raid. They're going to put up 50 a game. They, uh, like Brandon said, they ran, I mean, they threw for 223 and they ran for 185. What kind of air raid offense is that? Like, yeah. it, it's not working. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, it, I don't know. I mean, I get it. He threw, he threw the ball 42 times. Like, that's pretty high. And that's typically around where an air raid quarterback throws. But like, it's just nothing. It it's not it's not working. <laughs> I'll say it again. I'm old enough um, to remember Graham Harrell throwing the ball like 60 times, you know, for Texas. Yeah, that's back. fair. That's fair. I'm just thinking like like I think Mississippi State's quarterback. I mean, uh, shoot, what's his name? It's slipping my mind. But like he threw the ball 46 times last week, and that right. was the highest in the country. So like somewhere in that 40 plus yeah. range. Um, yeah. Yeah, when you're throwing the ball 40 times, it's um, you're committed to to the pass. But when you're only getting 223 yards on the flip side of that 42, I I, I don't I don't understand it. I don't I don't understand if 
your quarterback, you have Drake London, who's one of the best receivers in that conference, and you're not able to use a very powerful weapon like Drake London um, in order to at least hit maybe three bills on your passing yardage in 42 attempts. Um, I, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a scheme thing. Maybe uh, Graham Harrell is not uh, not the coach that they they thought that uh, was going to save this program. Shocking, just absolutely shocking. <laughs> um, and sort of re- sort of related to uh, opponents and games that we watched. Um, I, I thought UVA looked awesome. Um, at, through two weeks, they've impressed the hell out of me. Um, and, and I got a question on Twitter that I, I thought was interesting enough to bring up here, which was if, if you played anybody in Notre Dame's schedule this week instead of Purdue, which games do you think, uh, Notre Dame would be underdogs in? Um, Cincinnati, Wisconsin. Yeah. Cincinnati, Wisconsin. Probably, you know, they probably would put North Carolina and, Virginia Tech on there as well. Yeah. Um, they're probably only an eight-point favorite. They're only an eight-point favorite against Purdue. Yeah, probably a lot more than we thought before the season started, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so to the North Carolina point. Also, Are they good? My, 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 well, that's my thing. Okay, again, my theme tonight is anointing people that don't need to be anointed. So Sam you'll Howell, find no, who, yeah, yeah, you'll find no disagreement from us about Sam Howell. We are not right, Sam Howell yeah. people. So, <laughs> like Sam Howell was supposed to throw for four thousand yards with no receivers, which riddle me how we got there. I don't really get that. Um, like, and then who they beat this weekend? I forget. That's Georgia how State. consequential it was. Thank you. Um, like you went in against, and I think the Virginia Tech defense is. Okay, but also the the theme with Virginia Tech in in recent years is they drop these random games and give up 45 points. So like I'm not I'm just not ready to say like oh Sam Howell struggled at Virginia Tech because that's an elite defense. I think Sam Howell has no weapons. His offensive line is like if I, I'm trash. the oldest of I'm the oldest of five children, and I think that if my siblings and I played offensive line, it might go better than UNC. Um, <laughs> like I really do. Um, so like, I can see like an even line with UNC and Virginia Tech, but I, 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 I don't know that the data really backs that up. Um, I, I'm not, again, I'm not disagreeing. Like I get why you're saying that. And I think that if it came out, it would happen that way. But like, I, I don't fully understand why. And I would like to, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, it makes sense. I, I think that right now, um, with the close loss to, or the close loss, uh, the close wins back to back weeks. I think that there is a, um, knee jerk reaction to, I mean, and you saw it in the AP poll, Notre Dame dropped yeah. from eight to 12. And I, I think that, um, Notre Dame's in a show me mode where a lot of teams, and a lot of teams don't get that sort of, I mean, where's the show me mode for Texas A&M? How do you score 10 points against Colorado? And spend the whole game losing. And then yeah. they they bump down two spots, but they're not getting the same sort of pushback. And you score 10 points in a football game. Yeah. Well, right? knee-jerk reaction, why is Virginia Tech 15th? Like, what has Virginia Tech done to show you they are the 15th best team in the country? 
I, they beat I, UNC when you preseason ranked number 10. This is the problem with but preseason to, but polls. But to my point, yes, exactly. <laughs> to my point, like, we have – UNC is – if UNC goes 5-7, and seven, I'm not going to be shocked at all. And then it's going to look like, okay, you beat UNC, you beat them at home, and you scored – you could only muster 17 points against a terrible defense. Like, that's – Notre Dame gets this treatment of they, – they don't get the benefit of the doubt ever. Which I'm, I know you guys have talked about, and I know that's not like a new sentiment, but, um, yes, I'm, I'm venting. <laughs> that's, that's, this is the podcast to do such yeah. things. So, <laughs> yeah, you do know. you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what do you guys make of the, of the, the drop in, in both the polls? I mean, it feels appropriate. I don't, I mean, maybe yeah. you can quibble with the actual number, but, um, I mean, do you, do you think it's appropriate where they, where they landed in both the AP and the coaches poll? Uh, probably, I mean, probably, I think they're neat. Yeah. If I wasn't a Notre Dame fan and I was a casual observer of the sport and I was looking at this, um, you know, from 40,000 or whatever, I would say Notre Dame is not a top 10 team because you, you needed a last minute touchdown against Toledo and you needed overtime to beat a Florida state team that just lost to FCS Jackson, Jacksonville state. <laughs> so I can understand the need to it. And I'm not overly concerned because if you beat Wisconsin and Cincinnati back to back, you're right back up in the top five area. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not overly concerned. I understand why they did it. They're punishing Notre Dame for playing bad their first two games. And I can't, I can't, I don't have a ton of quibbles with it. The only thing that I wish is if you're going to punish Notre Dame like that, um, Drop Texas A&M too. If you're going to be consistent, <laughs> then be consistent. Don't just sure. drop Texas A&M two spots. Um, beating Colorado 10 to seven is just as bad as, you know, anything else that Notre Dame's put on the field. Yeah. yeah I thought we might, I, I thought we might get away with it because the game was on Peacock and nobody would pay for it to, uh, <laughs> to, well, that's to watch us struggle. So. If it was on NBC that they, they wouldn't have watched it because it was Toledo, but it was on <laughs> Peacock, which was sort of a meme at that point. So everybody was joking about it. So it yeah. became part right. of the national consciousness. So Brendan, obviously you were at the game. So you, you probably didn't have access to the, to the Peacock stream. Um, you know, Ashton, uh, I, I believe that you got a chance to watch, okay. uh, it on Peacock. Um, I, I was I was curious your your uh, point of view about about Drew Brees and his his first game. Uh, what did you make of his analysis? And was there things that you liked and didn't like? I mean, what, uh, if you gave him an overall grade, like how, where would you settle out with him? So I'll preface this with um, at two central. So the game was at one thirty central. I started working, so I was. I was listening. I had it on, but I did not listen to every word that he said, like I typically do when they're on. Sure. Um, I I would give him probably like an, an A minus B plus. I think I think he did a very good job. I also so I liked Drew Brees, so I came into this with that Thursday night when I guess it was at halftime of that Cowboys Bucks game. I was watching him talk, and he looked really uncomfortable. He looked. He was he his eye contact is weird. Like he looked out of place and I was like, Oh God, like this is going to be bad on Saturday. And granted Saturday, I wasn't seeing a lot of him. I was more hearing him. Whereas Thursday I was watching him, but I think he did a pretty good job. He, and he got appropriately trolled for this on Twitter. His Notre Dame just uh, blew this wide open comment uh, (laughs) that happened when they went up by eight 
I, again, I was working at that time. I like looked up from what I was doing and was like, excuse me. Like I was looking up, like did Notre Dame just score like three times and I just totally missed it. And I was like, they're up by eight. Um, and again, he got appropriately trolled for that on Twitter. So I think in general, did a pretty good job. A lot of what he said was like very baseline. Um, like there was not a ton of Tony Romo like analysis where I, he, he, I don't love. He, he definitely but, tried a couple of times because the one he, that made me a little, the yeah. one that made me laugh was he goes, they're setting up for a run play to the right. And I, I don't remember if Notre Dame was on offense or Toledo was on offense or whatever. And then it was like a pass and I don't even think it was to the right. And he goes, he goes, oh, very smart of whoever was on the offense. Very smart of Notre Dame to, uh, to adjust because they knew the whole, the whole stadium knew they were going to the right and they, uh, you know, they adjusted on the fly or whatever. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what you would say if you blew that, you know, blew that prediction. (laughs) I missed that specifically. It was, it was Um, humorous, but like at the same time, I felt like he was giving, um, especially with the quarterbacks, he was giving a lot of good analysis about, hey, you know, as a young quarterback, you can't uh, stare down a receiver like you and he would like be specific about it. Like you need to set, you know, I like this play because the the quarterback looked off the safety with his eye. You know what I mean? Like it was just it yeah. was it, it was something like a quarterback would see the game sort of experience or right. whatever. And I felt like Tariko was was really helping him um, in terms of just trying to make him as comfortable as possible in the in the booth. And Drew Brees was like. If I don't have to say anything, I'm not going to jump on it. So he wasn't – like some guys in their first game, they want to like – they want to show off and they just want to be there. So they say a lot. I didn't – I felt like Drew Brees maybe said less than he will when he just starts feeling a lot more comfortable. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, I thought it was fine. I would have said B plus, um, you know, the same the same as you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, him how mm-hmm. how he reacts against Purdue because I think that's the yeah. real litmus test, right? Well, yeah. and he's got some some demons uh, coming back. Did they on the broadcast? Because when we were watching it, um, down we didn't. I mean, we had the broadcast going up there, so we could kind of see what was being said. Um, but did they hammer Daquan Finn for handing Notre Dame the football game? Because Daquan Finn cost Toledo a win against a top 10 Notre Dame team. No, t- let's, no let's talk about let's talk about this theory of yours. I I I've oh, not it's heard not this a theory. Elucid- oh. I've not heard oh, this elucidated anywhere. Okay, go. Go for it. Dequan Finn's Toledo the football game. Oh, you seen this? Okay. He, yeah, cuz cuz he of course scampers into the end zone with under 2 minutes to go to put Toledo up. If he just slides to the ground in Falls on his butt on the one yard line. Toledo won, wins the football game. They go and they kick a field goal and it's game over. Oh, because you've never seen somebody fumble on the one yard line? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. You don't fumble the ball. You just take a knee. I understand what you go into I, I victory understand. formation. And you got to run it. You got to run another. Oh, you oh, go into victory formation. I see what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, go into victory formation. Prep up for the field goal, and then you just come out and you kick the field goal. I hmm. I. I was very um, uh, happy that he scored because uh, you know if 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 he doesn't if he doesn't score because he scored and then Notre Dame gets the football and they're able to drive down and and win the game. Um, but it was a 24 to 22 score at that point, so all they needed was a field goal to win. So if he just 
falls down on the one or the two or whatever. As soon as you get, I mean, he saw the end zone and he scampered right in. If you just get down and then burn out the rest of the clock, that's it. That's game over. You kick the field goal and you get out of South Bend with a dub. And instead, he goes into the end zone, scores a touchdown, they celebrate, and Notre Dame proceeds to drive the field and win the football game. So instead of the 26-yard touchdown, 25-yard gain, win the game. What was Notre Dame's timeout situation at that point? Did they have one or two? I think they had one. One. Okay. They had one timeout. Interesting. I know – if it was discussed during the game, I, I missed it and, and I just, I hadn't given it that much thought until right now, but I, I think I, I now hear what you're saying and there's definitely a certain logic to it. That's interesting. Because there was a minute, there was a minute and 40 left when he scored. Um, so if Notre Dame blows the timeout there, then on second and third down, they draw the clock down what? Another 80 seconds? Yeah. 30 or 70 seconds? So suddenly you're looking at 20 seconds left. You kick the field goal. Notre Dame gets the ball back down by one with under 20 seconds to go in the game. And that's if they just like down it. They don't like do the little thing where they try and run a run play. Um, if they try and run a run play, that's like another two, three seconds on top of the uh, 35 second runoff. They're, they milk the clock. Notre Dame might not get the ball with like 10 seconds left. It's a Hail Mary situation to try and get it down there instead. He gets into the end zone, scores the touchdown. Notre Dame's got a buck 40 and magic happens. So Hmm. that's interesting. I, uh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but, uh, look, I just, first of all, I think it's unnatural of a, of an athlete to not, not want to score a touchdown. Right. So that's, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to temper yourself, but. Situational backup QB. Yeah, situational awareness is, is always important. So that's an, that's interesting. Um, I'll have to maybe. I believe that uh, starting on Tuesday, the game will be available on Fighting Irish TV. So it might be a good time to to revisit it for all those who didn't uh, stick with their Peacock subscriptions. Um, although I think you probably got a, you got a month out of it at the very least, or, or three months if you uh, months. if you did the deal. So. Um, I'm going to be spending my time watching AP Bio season four because, uh, that's what I would do, but, uh, probably not watching the Raymond, the Peacock app again, but. I'm not sure I, I can, uh, watch that again. Yeah. First of all, <laughs> that's tough. And second of all, I'm almost sure they'll serve me ads during it, which I, I just, fighting you know, Irish TV, it will at least do me the courtesy of taking out the ads. So that'll be, that'll be super helpful. So, um, Okay, so that was uh that was the 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 Peacock experience. I heard some chatter earlier in the day that the Premier League stream was was uh, shitty, and I was a little worried that uh, I wasn't going to be able to keep up the the Toledo game. But I had no interruptions. I heard some people complaining about the the resolution of the television. Um, my son broke my television, so I was watching it on a computer screen. So I, I have nothing I have nothing to add about that. Ashton, did you was the screen in which you're watching it on? Did you notice any kind of um internet issues or anything like that no the the resolution wasn't weird there's nothing weird with the picture my only complaint which a lot of people had was that it was very very delayed and i think that had i been watching it like alone without a phone and also not having to be on twitter for work and like monitoring what was happening um, I would have, I would have been okay with it because whatever you learn a minute later, but like I kind of had to be on Twitter and also, um, people were texting me various things, my parents, cousins, whatever. 
Um, so like that was kind of my complaint and that I think too, like there was a lot written when this was announced, like this is kind of a glimpse into the future of sports. Like we're trending towards this, this streaming thing. And a lot of people came back and said, okay, great, fine. But also like, you're going to have to fix this delay. I don't know how that happens, but it was, it was as glaring as it kind of has ever been. I, I have YouTube TV instead of cable. So I always work on about a 20 to 30 second delay, but this was like a good minute, minute and a half, which is just a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and during it, the, we tested it during the game, Jude. Did you? I, uh, well, yeah, you, you and I did where, uh, I sent you in our DMs, uh, as soon as the third down was snapped, I said third down snapped. And then you let me know it was 90 seconds before you saw it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first touchdown of Michael Mayer, Pete Sampson tweeted it and we were still on a, I think that was like a third down play, if I recall correctly. And we were still on a first down, like Kyron Williams run for like one yard that hadn't like actually snapped the ball yet. Um, so that, yeah, that was extremely frustrating. And the other thing was, um, you know, as Ashton says, like when you, when you cut the cord and you go to a YouTube TV or an ESPN plus or something like that, you just, you accept the fact that you're going to make sacrifices on the, on the delay there. And so that people who are watching it over an antenna or obviously at the stadium are going to see things before you and you accept that. But when everybody's on Peacock and we're forced to be on Peacock and Peacock is running 90 seconds behind, it was super not helpful um, to have all the beat writers writing about the plays and not giving any analysis. They would just be like, touchdown, Kyron Williams, 43-yard run. And you're just like, I'm yeah. watching a totally different game. Like, I just saw Tyler Buckner run 26 yards. Like, what, what's going on here, right? And so yeah. um, I just felt like there wasn't any consideration. And then the, the clapback that I got from people was just stay off Twitter during the games. Like, okay, I get that. But also Twitter and, and me, and having my computer next to me and interacting with fellow Notre Dame fans has been part of my game watching since 2008. Like you're asking yeah. a person to give up 13 years of the way that they've done things because you can't be bothered to, to, to not tweet about a touchdown. That's a matter of fact tweet that really like doesn't give any like analysis or anything like that. It's just like touchdown so and so, right? It's not like, oh, I really like the way that Cone looked off the safety. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't, there isn't like an in depth. It just felt like everybody was racing to be the first person to say Michael Mayer touchdown when <laughs> we weren't even close to being at the touchdown place yet, you know? So yeah, no, I was frustrated I, by, I, by that, but I felt like I was in the minority because a lot of people were like, you need to chill out. And I just, I get it. I get that people think that, you know, this is my problem. But again, with this week, it was, it was, just, we were all forced to be on Peacock. And I felt like, you know, I wouldn't have said anything any other week because I make my bed with YouTube TV or ESPN Plus or whatever, I, you know, whatever you choose to watch on. So, yeah, no, I, I get it. And I, I mean, I kind of get you're sitting in the press box. Part of your job is to tweet. So I, I get that it, it's, and it's not the end of the world. Like I, I remember specifically the one that stuck out to me was when Pete Sampson tweeted like, Oh, just stop it. Kyle Hamilton about the interception. That was not an interception. Right. Um, and I was like, I looked at it and I, I was like, all right, this has to be good. Right. Like this is, you can only use this phrase in like a good way. Right. And then I was like, Oh my God, but like, what if it's not good? And then for like 45 seconds, I was like sitting there like twiddling my thumbs, like what's going to happen. <laughs> like, um, and yes, like, there are the people that will say, turn off your phones. Like, again, like 
I can't, it's kind of hard to do that when like you're writing about games that like, I don't know, it's just, it would, it's, it would cause more issues to turn off all notifications or to notify the eight members of my family, like don't speak to me. Um, I mean, I guess here, here with Peacock, it didn't matter as, as much because they were on Peacock too, but I'm thinking with YouTube TV, like my parents will text me because they have cable about things or like my dad always sends a shamrock when Notre Dame scores. So like I'll get them and then be like, all right, that's good. Whatever. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just no, no complaints about the stream, how it looked, whatever, just the, I don't, I didn't want to know everything before it happened, but you know, if that's so, my only complaint, it's probably that this is i want to push back a little bit on on something that you said because yeah i mean i don't know that it's a newspaper reporter's job to tweet during the game and i don't know that they've ever gone to an annual review and said well at this point in the annual review i had five thousand twitter followers and now i have eight thousand twitter followers okay yeah you deserve a raise i think it's always about what the product is in the newspaper uh more so than i don't think that there's i don't think that there's a person who is a managing editor at a newspaper that, that really gives a shit if you moved up 3,000 um, Twitter followers in a year. If you moved up 300,000 Twitter followers in a year, I would I would say yes. So when you say it's my job to tweet about the game, like, yeah, if you're working for on3.com or whatever and you're you're trying to do stories in, like, real time about things that are happening as they're happening, like, I actually probably agree with you on that. But if you're just, like, a beat writer whose job is to file a story after the game – I I think I take the other side of that, and I don't mean to like rip on newspaper reporters because I used to be a newspaper reporter, and I I think they're important, but I don't know that I needed all of the beat writers to be tweeting about the game because I'm watching the game. I I, I want them tweeting Fair. about things that they're seeing that I can't see, but when you're saying, you know, Kyron Williams found a hole and he's gone 43 yards later, touchdown Irish, you know, 14 whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't feel like, especially in this one week where I just was like, hey, can everybody be chill about this? And everyone was like, no, this is my job. Like, I, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I, I accept that I'm in the minority about this because I got a lot of shit on Twitter when I, when I, I guess complained about it, but, um, I just, I don't know. That's, that's, that's just, fair. Sort of, that's sort of my thing. Like, I'll- true or false, you watch the stats broadcast. <laughs> and see the plays seconds before they occur. True or false? Okay, so now you're blowing me up. So the answer is absolutely <laughs> true. So I, I am my own. Spo- I am my own spoiler. Yes. Um, but but that's a few seconds. I think I think that the difference is, and I think the difference between all of it is um, the amount of delay that there is. Because yeah. when there's a, when there's, I have YouTube TV and I can't tell you that I've ever been spoiled by anything because the amount of time that it takes somebody to write up something like that, I'm seeing it as it happens. Cause it takes you, you know, you know, five, 10, 15 seconds to, to write something up that, like that up. And by the time that you've written it up and sent it to me and I see it on Twitter or Twitter refreshes, I've seen that, I'm seeing that play as it's happening. But when there's yeah. a nine second delay, it's completely different because instead of, um, you know, just you wait a beat and then it happens, instead it's, um, you know, 
like Ashton said, waiting 45 seconds to see if the Kyle Hamilton thing is good or bad. And there's entire plays that need like entire plays of drives that occur before it. I think that's the big difference. It's not like you're getting the play, like the ball snapped and they're seeing it live on TV. And then you see the ball snap, you know, 15, 20 seconds later for you. There's not much difference there. But when it's 90 seconds, that's, I think, where the problem is. Yeah. I'm going to add. Oh, oh, go go ahead, Dashin. Okay. Um, I was going to add, so I have like the ESPN note, like scoring notifications turned on for Notre Dame games, which is dumb because I'm always watching them, but they're still on. <laughs> but like typically with YouTube TV, before they can send the it's seven nothing Notre Dame notification, I've already seen it, even though it is a little delayed. But this, like I was getting like 40, 43 yard touchdown run and Notre Dame's on their own 30. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. And then also I was going to say, um, to your point about the job thing, I, I'll rephrase that to say, I don't, I agree with you. It's certainly not in the job description of a beat reporter, but there's this like unspoken, I would say like unspoken rule due to the fact that people started doing it, that now if you don't do it, you look bad. You know what I mean? And like, and like, I I, I disagree with like that being, like, I don't like that, but I think that, like, it's become, whilst, yes, I totally agree with you, it's not in the job description, I kind of feel like people follow beat reporters now because they want that, and if they don't get it, they're like, wait, you're not paying attention. And I'm I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but, yeah, I yeah. think that it's, like, it's become, like, a race to do it, not because your company told you to do it, but because the rival paper person is doing it and therefore you have to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I I feel like we've taken this breaking news mentality and moved it over into humdrum events, right? If you are like, I follow you as a beat writer because you're going to be the one who tells me that Larry Keyes has left the team. You're going to be the one who tells me that the Michael Carmody injury is more serious than feared and he's going to be out X, X number of weeks or whatever. That's why I follow you. I don't follow you for you to be the first person to tell me that Michael Mayer caught a touchdown pass in the game that I'm watching. Sure. I, I just I don't I don't see any value in you racing to Twitter to tell me something that I'm going to see with my own eyes in in, in nine seconds, you know. And 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 again, I 100% agree with what both of you are saying, which is you probably can't tweet it out faster than I can see it most times, or I've or I've learned to live with it or I've mitigated it or something, you know what I mean? Or I, I haven't looked at the screen until after the play's completed. Um, but when it was with Peacock, like it was just, it just, you, there, I tried exiting the game and coming back in to see if that would help refresh the stream I'd a little bit. Too. Um, it didn't seem to work. Nothing seemed to work. <laughs> I didn't get any farther yeah. behind, but I also didn't, um, I certainly never got closer than probably two, two and a half plays, um, which was, you know, it was tough. And I, and I think that, if they're going, you know, obviously, you know, I, I'm very interested in, you know, if you write this story, I'll probably be pushing around to every, everybody. I'm very interested in what metric everybody's going to be looking at for this game, right? Like, is it about Peacock subscriptions who sticks around? Is it about the number of people who watch Peacock? Is it about the number of people that signed up on the day of the game and used the code Notre Dame? Like, what metric are they going to define success for this game as? You know what I mean? Because whatever I know a lot one, whatever metric gives them the word success, they will use whatever yeah. metric it, it that they can spin to make it seem like a success. Because this train's not slowing down. They're already talking. Like the next 
media rights um, contracts, they're all going to be streaming. Um, yeah. I think Amazon's in it for uh, Thursday Night Football, right? Yeah, yeah, and they did they did that exclusive. I think it was Cardinals 49ers game. Yeah. Last December, January, it was late in the season that was only on Amazon Prime. And that made a lot of people mad because it was like, all right, it's one thing if like it's also on Amazon Prime and like it's easier to stream from my phone as I walk down the street. But like I'm not paying for Amazon Prime to get this game, but like you're going to have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, even like Notre Dame's response to international customers, right? International customers don't have access to Peacock. And so on the Friday at 5 o'clock, the day before the game, uh, less than 24 hours to kickoff, they come up with a solution where people can pay $35 and get all the games on Fighting Irish TV. Except now Fighting Irish TV is not the app that they've all been talking about. It's a it's a website, FightingIrishTV.com, right? And so that takes away one problem that they've had with Fighting Irish TV, which is that it's only available on certain platforms, and Roku being the biggest one it's not on. Um, but the other thing is, I really don't know. that I asked the question and got no responses, but I really don't know how hard of it is a problem for people internationally to get NBC or and or specifically the Notre Dame football games. Like, is it worth paying 35 bucks just to watch the Toledo game if you know that the other six games are going to be on NBC and therefore whether you're armed services, you know, uh, and, and you're getting NBC through the, you know, the armed services or whatever, or you're just, you know, you're in Canada or whatever, however you get it. Like, is it worth paying 35 bucks just to see this Toledo game? You know, so I thought that was an I thought that was an interesting last minute solution, like almost like they hadn't considered, hey, if we assimilate with Peacock, like there's actually Notre Dame fans who live outside the continental United States who are going to be royally screwed by this. Because I think I think they were their position was like, oh, it's seven fifty for three months. Like, what's the big deal or whatever? You know, which, again, for people that can afford it, it's not a big deal. Um, But it's also the exact opposite. And I. You know, I'm on my soapbox now, but this is, you know, I've said this before on the podcast. It's the exact opposite of how Notre Dame's always played things, right? Notre Dame's always tried to reach the widest uh, audience possible, and now, um, you know, with this with this one game only, they they tried to they try to segment us, which was, I mean, obviously it's a it's a test case for for future streaming rights deals, as as Brennan alluded to, but. Um, it just, it's weird. It's weird to think that not everybody could see the Notre Dame game if they wanted to. I mean, that was one of the things that, that drew me to Notre Dame when I was, when I was a kid and probably ultimately helped, um, make me interested in attending the school was like that they were the team that I could see uh, every weekend. Um, I could see the Giants because, you know, obviously, um, the, you know, CBS and, and later Fox broadcasts and stuff like that. So NFL was always taken care of, but with college, you really couldn't always see your favorite team. And now I get that it's different, but, um, you know, it just, it's, it's weird to think that they, they cut people off from, from seeing their football team play. Yeah. It's weird also just from like a, like a reputation kind of standpoint. Maybe I look too far into this, but when this was announced, like people were texting me and they're like, you guys pride yourself on the fact that you are on national TV. Like, why are you voluntarily? walking that back like you're gonna get made fun of for that and we did a lot like it was just it seems like a weird move and again I get it was like a test case and like there was there's the whole like Jack Swarbrick is a leader on a number of things like spiel that the university (laughs) gave which I like Jack Swarbrick in all honesty and I think he is a leader on a lot of things but like it just it it when you looked at it at first glance it was everyone was just like what like what 
what are, what are you trying to accomplish? It was also a weird game to do it because like nobody outside of the heavy Notre Dame people are going to watch the Toledo game. If you do this with Clemson, you're probably going to get a much bigger audience. I get there's also a bigger gamble because like what if people don't pay to watch it and then you just lost what you would have had on NBC in a primetime game against Clemson. But like, Again, I, I get there are a lot of variables and I do not work for NBC Universal, <laughs> so I don't know, but it just, it didn't seem to add up and it, it just, it seemed weird and to your point in like direct contention with both Notre Dame's reputation of just being like, we're, we are everywhere and like you cannot escape us, but also like we are trying to be good, good people and share this with everybody. Like, I don't know. It was just, it was odd. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you dovetail into something else that I wanted to talk to you about, which is, you know, we talk, we talk a lot about Notre Dame fandoms and, you know, Brendan and I have talked at length about how we became Notre Dame fans, but we, I mean, I've heard you tell your story before, but I think it's worth repeating to people who are listening to you for the first time. I mean, you didn't go to Notre Dame. And so nope. I think there's a question, <laughs> there's a question to be asked. And again, no slight on University of Pennsylvania because that's, that's an awesome school too. But, um, there's something, there's a question to be asked. This is like, how did you affiliate with, with Notre Dame? How did you associate with it? Is it, is it through a, a through a parental connection? Is it through a, a relative? Like, is it from watching them on TV? Like, how did you become a Notre Dame fan? Um, yes, it is. It is a parental connection. My dad is the Notre Dame class of 1988. So it is through, it is through him. Um, he, prior to him, my great uncle, so my grandmother's sister's husband went to Notre Dame and he was, my dad will say, I think, I think this is after representation of what he'll say. That wasn't the only reason, but I think certainly, um, I'm from Virginia, so it's not like we're from Chicago or anything. Um, that certainly kind of opened his eyes to it and he just wanted to go somewhere different and, and went to Notre Dame. But yeah, so that, that is the reason why I'm a Notre Dame fan. So <laughs> is, upside, is upside, he got to see Tim, Tim Brown's Heisman year. Downside, he graduates and they win the national championship, right? Um, correct. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yep. Such a, uh, such I, a bummer. I know. I think, I believe they went back for that Miami game that year. I think. Um, I think that's right, but yeah, went went back went back once that that fall, but yeah. So you were, you were and, you were screwed from the beginning. I mean, he oh he, yeah he raised you and your four siblings as Notre Dame fans, and and did you all take to it, or did some of you rebel? Um, so nobody formally rebelled. I would say <laughs> I am the one. I am the one that lives and dies by it. I am certainly the one most impacted by it. My youngest brother who is 13 yeah he turns 14 next week so call him 14 um he is he's kind of similar to me he gets he gets upset he's the one that they go down he's like I can't watch this anymore but then sits there and watch it because he's addicted and we all have a problem um (laughs) I my middle three siblings my my sister is not not a Notre Dame fan but just doesn't watch football religiously she's I mean she follows it she knows what's going on she's a she's a Saints fan so like we'll watch that but is not changing plans to watch Notre Dame other brother um same same idea he goes to Virginia Tech actually um and so now he's kind of a Virginia Tech fan but and then other last brother it's it's two girls and three boys last brother not a sports person so could care less so I'm certainly the one most impacted by it, um, other than also my mom. So my mom went to UVA actually and is oh. now now fully a member of the 
of the Notre Dame, um, Notre Dame cult. She will pull for, typically will pull for Notre Dame over UVA. And she says that's because typically it, if, if UVA wins, it does less for them in the long run than if Notre Dame loses, you know, like typically when Notre Dame plays them now, like there's something on the line. Whereas with UVA, it's like, cool, you beat Notre Dame, but you're going to go six and six. So like, does it really matter other than like a talking point? Um, so yeah, she's, she's on the, she's on the bandwagon too, but I'm uh, not bandwagon. She's on the, well, I guess kind of bandwagon. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? She, yeah. she was roped into this too. So that was yeah. a long winded answer. It's split, but nobody, I, nobody rebelled in the sense of like went to Michigan and is now bleeding blue and maize or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I was, I also was curious about your, um, experience with, um, talking with and interacting with other women who are who are passionate Notre Dame fans, whether they're in the media sphere or just on, on Twitter. I, I have been just so impressed with the depth of knowledge of um, Notre Dame, female Notre Dame fans and just um, how they can, you know, they can educate you about stuff they are they have bring a different perspective to things. Um, they bring a sense of humor that I, I don't think that I, that I possess. And I'm, I really, uh, I really enjoyed my interactions with, I don't know if you've, uh, you've ever dealt with Bridget Reynolds or, or Nina or Lisa mm-hmm. Kelly, or obviously Jess Matana probably being the, probably the most well-known or whatever, but um, right. just sort of how you found the, um, that subset of the Notre Dame fandom to be. Yeah, so I will say that I haven't had as many interactions with female Notre Dame fans um, in the media that I would like to. I, I've talked to Jess. She was great. I actually reached out to her when I was debating whether or not to go to journalism school, which I ultimately did, and that's how I'm sitting here. But I, in my past life, I actually worked in Washington, D.C. in politics and healthcare, so doing something totally different. But um, reached out to her um, and talked with her. She was great. She's she's fantastic. And to your point, her Twitter account, if you are listening to this podcast and don't follow her, which I if you're listening to this podcast, you probably follow her. But if you don't follow her right now, she's like, I mean, she used to write for SB Nation and occasionally did articles for one foot down. So I would imagine that most people are are familiar with her at this point. But uh, yeah, I mean, obviously. um, Yeah, we're team Jess around here. So yeah, um, one of the funniest people on Twitter. But um, yeah, I would say the majority of my interactions with females that are Notre Dame fans have kind of been within my family. Um, so yeah. not, not, not in the, not in the media. Um, again, I, I do want to reach out more, but I basically just started doing this whole journalism thing now a year ago. So I'm, I'm very new to it, but, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of growing up in Virginia, Obviously, Notre Dame fans are everywhere. It's a national fan base. But, like, you don't stumble upon Notre Dame, people that went to Notre Dame like you do when you walk around Chicago, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah. you, find them, you find them in various places. But um, a lot of my friends that are women that are in are in sports are fans of different teams. And um, they've they've been awesome. I know a lot of uh, Virginia Tech people just being from Virginia that uh, my, my family that worked at Virginia Tech or for Virginia Tech. Um, so, yeah, I would say, sorry, that was kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but I have, I've interacted less with Notre Dame specific women in sports, but, um, I think that the, I think that Twitter is super fun for that too, of just like seeing people talk about sports that you wouldn't normally see and like seeing that there are women out there kind of doing 
what you're doing um and is is awesome uh for for women in sports so yeah i don't know if, does that answer your question <laughs> yeah absolutely and and i guess my last question is more towards brennan brennan who's the most un- insufferable graduate of the medill school of journalism and why is it Stu Mangel? brennan do we lose I you? Think he- I think he might have. He put in here a second ago that um, I assume Charlotte is his daughter. He said Charlotte. Oh was yeah, yeah. He he's in Charlotte duty. Yeah. So okay. so what, what I was going to say is you, you got to help the reputation of the Medill School of Journalism because it obviously pumps out wonderful journalists. But the in terms of the sports journalists that is pumped out, there's a there's quite an insufferable lot that that will remind you every five seconds that they went to Medill and also have this weird uh, affinity for Northwestern that I think is manufactured, but they also have like a, like a Darren Rovell has a weird pride for Northwestern. I feel like it's bordering on unhealthy. So Um, maybe a little fair. You mentioned Stuart Mandel. I will, I will plug Stuart Mandel, although I know that he's some Notre Dame fans take issue with what he says. He he's been nothing but very nice to me. So I, well, okay. Um, I you have a personal relationship with him. I, 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 we haven't had that interaction, but, uh, I, Ted, do, do you, have you met Teddy Greenstein? Cause he, he'll remind you that he's gone to Medill too. So I have not met him. He spoke to a class that I was in, but, um, I have not met him. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of, I'm aware of the, uh, <laughs> the stereotype. <laughs> um, Medill was, Medill was great to me. But I, I understand why it gets a little, it gets a little, uh, insufferable for sure. So hopefully I am not like that. And if I ever <laughs> am, please let me know. But, uh, otherwise, no, I, I get it for sure. So, so I, I think that's all, um, that I've got for you tonight. I obviously want to give you a chance to, um, have people find you on wherever you want you or wherever you want to be found, whether that's on three.com or on your social media or whatever. But, um, is there anything that we didn't talk about tonight that you, uh, wanted to mention while you have the attention of, uh, of Notre Dame fans here on the Sunday night? <laughs> um, I don't think so. Uh, I have a, try to have a, we're all in this together mentality, <laughs> um, but I think, and this has been said, by by you guys and by um various various Notre Dame people in the media that are that heavily study the team. I think try to remember, I try to do this that this this program's in a better position than it may seem. Um sometimes I question that like I did yesterday afternoon. But I think for the first time I've talked to my dad about this too, for the first time in really my lifetime, I feel like it's a very stable program and I try to remain relatively optimistic. Um, yeah, but that's, that's we talk we, we talk about that endlessly on this podcast, which is yeah, like, right. we really we really encourage people to step back and also if you you know are the age that that Josh Brendan and I are, which is you know late thirties early forties or whatever, um, there were a lot of lean years uh, that we that we watched post Holtz, whether it be uh, you know uh, Davy not living up to expectations or Willingham. Uh, giving us uh, uh, false expectations, and then obviously cratering. Uh, Charlie Weiss kind of doing much of the same, and then Brian Kelly kind of just having a, you know, a so ho hum, so so kind of eight and five existence that he was middling through before that national championship year. So, um, you know, I, I just I I I bought Peacock because I couldn't think of not watching one of the the 12 games that we are fortunate enough to watch or 13 games with a, with a bull every year, because I just really enjoy it for 13 Saturdays. Um, I can't, yeah. I can't imagine uh, doing something else. 
does it hurt like hell when uh, when Gary Gray gets beat in the corner of the end zone and Michigan wins for the second straight year in a row and a last a last second score? Yeah, of course it hurts like hell. Um, you know, but maybe as you get a little bit older, you start to try to divorce yourself from from some of that emotional aspect and put it towards maybe things that are a little bit more pertinent. Um, you know, to your existence, like your kids or you know, if you get married, your wife or husband or whatever. Um, it's hard though. It's hard. I, I'm definitely bummed out when the, when the team loses, but, um, you know, I'm never going to be upset about, uh, a 32 to 29 win over Toledo. I just look, could have gone better. Absolutely. But Hey man, at the end of the day, we won, we won. We're two and oh, Clemson can't say that Ohio state can't say that. Uh, USC can't say that. Um, you know, there's a lot of teams that would, would love to be 2-0 and right now. And, uh, Notre Dame is, is still fortunate enough to be one of them. So if there is a loss on the schedule, um, you know, and there very well might be multiple losses, uh, then, then so be it. And those, those, uh, those Saturdays are not going to be as fun, but I'll still be appreciative of the fact that the team has gone, you know, um, 12 and 0 in, in multiple seasons and made, made two playoffs in, in three years and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, w- when the offensive line is collapsing and, and the long knives are out and people want to place blame on their wide receiver recruiting or whatever, I just try to r- remind people that <laughs> we've had it pretty solid, uh, yeah. probably since about 2017, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and I think your, your word is absolutely right. Stability. Um, this has become a real stable program. Is it a tier one program? No, it's probably not. Um, but it's a really darn good tier two program. And, uh, you know, if you don't, if you, if you're not satisfied with that, then the bandwagon's big enough in Alabama and Ohio state and Clemson, they'll, they'll take you on. But, um, you know, I think there's no place I'd rather be. Yeah, no, to your point, maybe they're not a tier one program, but very few teams are. There's a three, maybe Maybe four or five, you could argue for a couple, uh, a couple more. But yeah, no, I, I think, and also, um, you, you kind of mentioned this. It was funny last January, I guess, post Rose Bowl, I was with my, my immediate family and then my cousins that are all Virginia Tech people. And my mom was just going on this rant about Ian Book and how bad Notre Dame was, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And my aunt and cousin, who are like huge, huge Virginia Tech fans, like one of them, my cousin worked in the recruiting office and now um, actually works for the the company that does the Duke's Mayo Bowl. Um, they're <laughs> yes. they're looking at my mom like, "Are you joking? Like you just made your second playoff in three years and you're complaining?" And my mom's like, "Well, like they get blown out, which they do. They do get blown out by Alabama and Clemson. We have I've relived that multiple times now, and I get that. But like, I think." I've, I'm trying at least, and I, I will say this to my mom, even though I don't always um, practice it when I'm panicking when Toledo <laughs> takes the lead in the fourth quarter. Like, it, it's a lot better than it could be. It's a lot better than it used to be. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm 25, so I don't really remember the early Charlie White series other than my obsession with Brady Quinn. But um, I mean, as who far didn't, as right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as far as like, I knew nothing about like general program stability. I was just like, oh, cool, Jeff Samarja caught a touchdown pass. That's awesome. Which it was. But um, <laughs> now that I know a lot more about it, it feels like it's going pretty well. I I want a national title. I sure do. But uh, who doesn't? And, and you know, and I, get it. <laughs> I think sometimes when Maybe. you're a Notre Dame, when you're a Notre Dame fan and you and all you've done is watch Notre Dame football and you don't and you don't really like. I, I think it's great that you're a national college writer because you're you 
you're kind of forced to to watch other teams and get a sense yeah. of where Notre Dame's places and in the whole landscape of college football. And I think a lot of Notre Dame fans, we've talked about this a lot, lose that that sense of context. Like sure. Clemson fans had to suffer through giving up 70 points in a bowl game to West Virginia or Oklahoma. I can't remember what it was in Orange Bowl before they, you know, a couple of years before they won a national championship. So like every yeah. every step along the way, it's not like you turn on the lights. And you have a national championship team. If that were true, uh, Matt Campbell probably would have won it last year, right? Um, right. But you know, it's just it's it's a building formation, and you you hit a it, you hit a new resistance level, and you struggle at that resistance level, and you come back to that resistance level a couple of times, then you and then you finally uh, the hope is that you finally break through or whatever. So um, you know, maybe it's not this year, but I I think that we could we could still have a very good a very good season. I think that the you know, the preseason predictions of 10 and 2 with losses to uh, Cincinnati and USC or Wisconsin and Cincinnati or Wisconsin and USC or whatever, they don't look quite right right now because we just we don't have a real good sense of who Wisconsin is. Cincinnati looks good now, but they really haven't played anybody. Uh, UNC obviously had that hiccup in the in the first week or whatever. So, um, you know, 